I would ask you this morning to grab your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And what we see as we have been walking through this very practical letter of James, uh, we see how we as Christians are to display the genuineness of our faith and what that looks like in regular daily life. How we as Christians display the genuineness of our faith by our works and also demonstrate uh, the genuineness of our wisdom by the outward acts and behaviors that flow, that we are obedient to God to demonstrate the genuineness of our faith and that our wisdom that we live by is a wisdom that is from above. Last week, we looked at that in particular at the end of chapter 3. James spends time talking about the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom and showing us the difference between those and what they're characterized by. And he's going to build on that because this morning we're going to see that uh, worldly wisdom shows itself in worldliness. And what does worldliness look like? What does that look like compared to God and his wisdom? And how should we as people respond to the worldliness we see all around us? So James chapter 4, we're going to see the application of what he shared in James chapter 3. What godly wisdom looks like and what worldly wisdom looks like. So this morning I want you to look at James chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to read uh, till verse uh, 12. And so if you would, out of honor for God's word, would you stand with me this morning and let's read God's word together and let's give him glory as we study. James chapter 4 starting in verse 1. James writes and says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us with these verses and to understand. Lord, we need you to demonstrate to us the glory of Christ and his greatness. Father, we need to see this morning our desperate need for Jesus. 
And, and Father, we pray that you would help us as Christians to glorify you in the way that we live, in the way that we talk, and God, in the way that we display the genuineness of our faith. And so, Father, this morning, I pray you will help us to see clearly the results of worldliness and why we as Christians should be uh, repenting and, God, we should be uh, seeking to follow after you. And, Father, this is why we call upon sinners to repent because worldliness is contrary to you, God. And so I pray this morning that you will help us to see the need to reject worldliness and instead to cling to Jesus. And so, Father, I pray you'll teach us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So how does James apply the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom? Well, he points us primarily in James chapter 4 to the results of worldliness. What does worldliness result in? What does worldliness bring? And so this morning I want to walk through four different aspects of worldliness that I want to, to show you from God's word. I want you to notice he starts in verse 1 with this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Right? Now, he's speaking to who? Who is he writing to? Christians. So he's asking, what causes quarrels and fights among Christians many times? What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? So he's going to answer it for them. How does worldly wisdom impact one's life? How does it impact uh, how we act and, and live? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Okay, so the focus is going to be, at least initially, on what these passions are that are at war within them that leads to quarreling and leads to fighting among the people. Now, here's what we know. Okay, here's what I believe the Bible teaches. Is all pleasure bad? The answer is no, not all pleasure is bad. God, God has created us for pleasure, correct? He's created us to have joy and satisfaction. We are to glorify God as Christians in all we do because God is our ultimate joy and our ultimate satisfaction. But here, the passions and pleasures that James is talking about are passions and pleasures that cause fights and quarrels among them. So what are those passions? Well, I want you to notice in verse 2, right? So he asked the question, what causes Wars and quarrels, what causes quarrels and fights? Well, he's very definitive that worldliness causes quarrels and fights among them. And he tells them why. He says in verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. What's the desire behind that? If you desire and don't have, so you murder, what's the desire behind that? selfish, I want, but I ain't got, so I'm going to go take it, right? That is a self-centered, self-motivated passion. Is that wrong or right? Wrong, right? Because that's not, God didn't design us to be self-centered, 
But that is what worldly wisdom brings. Worldly wisdom cares about self above all else. And as a result, he says, it makes its way into our quarrels and fights. It causes them because we desire to have something for ourselves. We cannot have it. And so we murder. There's no trust. There's no dependence. There's no Godward glory. It's just simply, I want something. I can't get it, so I'm going to take it. He says, you covet which means you desire something that someone else has. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You want to know where fights and quarrels are found? Anywhere there is selfish desire that can't be met comes fights and quarrels. And it's no different even in the church. When you don't get what you want, and you can't get it, you will fight and quarrel for self-gratification. This is what worldly wisdom brings. It's a, remember, in, in chapter 3, he described what wisdom of the world looks like, right? He says in verse 14 of chapter 3, if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. What are the workings of worldly wisdom? Selfish ambition, bitter jealousy. I want for me, I don't care about what you want. And just so you know, Jesus died and rose again to rescue us from that selfish idolatry that only cared about what I wanted. Forget everybody else. He died to rescue from that heart. Why would Christians display that type of wisdom when we've been rescued by Jesus? Did Jesus demonstrate that type of heart? No. In fact, Jesus, who had every right to expect everyone to look at him and worship him and bow down to him, instead, in Philippians 2, Paul tells us Jesus took the form of a man, was obedient to the Father even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Paul connects what Jesus did on the cross to the mindset of Jesus. And what was mindset of Jesus at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2? considered others greater than himself. See, Jesus displayed the glory of God in the others' thinking humility that he displayed. He died for us, for what was our benefit, even to his own detriment. And yet, you want to know where fights and quarrels come from in the world and in the church? It comes from having desires for self that aren't met, and rather than trusting God, we're going to take. We're going to make it happen. That's what worldly wisdom results in. It causes quarrels and fights. But not only that, he goes at the end of chapter 2 and shares another result of worldliness. He says at the end of chapter 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So what's the second result of worldliness? Well, worldliness leads to prayerlessness and ineffective prayer. He says you do not have because you do not ask. See, right? Their selfish desire was what? 
I want for me. My passions say I want this, but I can't obtain it. So you would think that as believers, what would be our, our first action in the midst of this type of selfishness? Be to go to God, ask his forgiveness, and trust that he'll bring whatever he desires for us to have so we don't have to be discontent. We don't have to fight and get what we want. God will give us because we trust him that he'll give us what we need. He says you, you want, but you don't ask. Uh, I think sometimes because we know what the answer is going to be. Right? Why bother asking if you already know? Right? Well, that should say something, right? If we already know the answer is going to be no, shouldn't that tell us something about the motivation behind why we're asking? He says you don't have because you don't ask. There's no dependence on God. There's no prayer to God. There's no reliance on him for ultimate satisfaction. This is what worldly wisdom brings, a desire to meet your satisfactions by your own efforts and your own hands. So a practical equivalent of this, uh, if you look at it, the, the fact that we are, we are prayerless must mean that some must have been upset in the people, in the church, in the people he's writing to, some must have been upset from taking requests to God and not getting the answer they wanted. He says you don't have because you, you don't ask. People can get frustrated when they pray continually to God about something that they deeply desire and God doesn't give it to them or God doesn't answer. Or it gets to the point where you've prayed for something so many times, you just stop praying. See, the, what God wants us to see is that they don't have, one, because they don't ask, and two, because they ask for the wrong reason. He says in verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. It's possible to pray wrongly and to ask wrongly. He says, why don't you receive when you ask wrongly? Because you ask to spend it on your own what? Passions, desires. There's that word. That's the difference between good desires that glorify God and evil ones. He says, you ask. So, so one, you got some who don't pray at all. You don't have because you don't ask. You're going to try to get it on your own. And two, you've got those who are ineffective in praying because God knows when they pray, they're going to spend it on their sinful desires and passions that he mentions in verse one that lead to quarrels and fights. So actually, God could answer their prayers and they'd go, yay, but then they would use it to quarrel and fight among themselves. So sometimes God's answer is no, because he knows it'll be used stirring up quarrels and fights among others. And oh boy, we still model this today. What we see here is the implication that there are people asking that their will would be done, not God's. And the word here that he uses to say they spend it on their own passions is actually a word used to describe the prodigal son. Remember what he did with his inheritance? He spent it all on what? His own passions and desires. See, that's what marks worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom. 
So number one, worldliness causes wars and fights and quarrels. Number two, worldliness leads to prayerlessness and ineffective prayers. Number three, worldliness is against or contrary to God. These two things cannot exist together. They are mutually exclusive. Worldliness and godliness are opposites that are contrary to one another. In fact, James here equates worldliness with idolatry. He says in verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Okay, so let me shatter uh, the idea that somehow you can be both godly and worldly, that you can be on God's team and the world's team at the same time, that you are somehow able to dance that line. Do you understand? James is telling us they are mutually exclusive. You cannot be both God's and the world's. Does that make sense? And we got to understand that because we spend so much time especially the people around us who don't know God, spend so much time trying to dance in both that somehow I can align myself with God but still enjoy and seek after the things of the world. James tells us that they're mutually exclusive. Why? Because worldliness is actually against or contrary to God. What this means is that as a human being, you are not naturally neutral to God. Before I was a Christian, when I was a teenager, I wasn't neutral with God, although I thought I was, right? I thought, well, I don't have really an opinion on God. Uh, you know, I'm not, I don't know him. I don't know anything about him. I don't know if he even exists, right? I'm just neutral. I'm playing, the, I'm playing the middle part of the field. But what the Bible tells us is that when I was a teenager and I thought I was neutral to God, what I was actually displaying to the world was that I was against God. You know why? Because I didn't care about God. I didn't care about the glory of God. I didn't care about obedience to God. I didn't care about the truth of God. That, that is not neutral to God. Paul goes so far as to tell us in Ephesians chapter 2 that before we are brought into the kingdom of Christ, we are actually following Satan. Did y'all catch that? See, our neighbors and our friends and our family who don't know Jesus, they're not neutral to God. Because worldliness is against God. Notice how James phrases it. To be a friend of the world is to be what? An enemy of God. Now, that's serious, right? That changes the discussion. Because now we see that our neighbors and our friends and our family that don't know Jesus are not just doing the best they can and they're neutral towards God and hopefully... But that the Bible actually states that if they're not believers in Jesus, they're actually fighting against God. That's a scary thing. Because what should be the punishment for one who wars against the king? What would they understand to be the punishment for someone who directly defied the king and rebelled against him? They would expect to be put to death. So see the... The problem is when we go out to the park later on, anybody who's there who doesn't know Jesus is not neutral to God. And the thing is, they may not even know that they're actually against him. That's why 
we have to take them the good news of Christ. That they are sinners, and yet, even in opposition to God, God sent his only son. Remember Romans chapter 5. In that while, right? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died, right? He didn't die for us because we're good people. He died for those who were actually rebels against him who he was going to change. And so worldliness, we have to understand, is against or is contrary to God. And some believe they can be friends with the world and God. But that's not possible. In fact, Jesus uh, tells us this in John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said this to his followers. He said, the world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. What is worldliness characterized by? Hatred of God. Even the dolled up, the doesn't look so bad, even that is hatred towards God. A.T. Robertson said this, theologian, he said, this world will only love as a familiar friend those who cater to its ideals and standards, who condone its slackness of morals and neglect of God. That's who the world loves. Those who love the ideals and standards of the world. And we must, as believers, learn the difficult thing of how to live in the world without being of the world. Remember, Jesus prayed for his followers before he, he left them. And he prayed that God would keep them, that they would be in the world but not of the world. But here's the great news of the gospel. Here's the great news of God. He takes enemies of his, and through his son and his death and resurrection, he makes friends. Some of y'all need to get excited about that at some point in your life. Uh, there you go. Everyone in this room who is a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus... You used to be on the other side of the fight against him. You used to be going, you maybe didn't know it, but you were going to war with God. And you and I deserved to be obliterated by the holy God of all creation. But instead of obliterating, guess what he did? Sends his son to die. So that instead of being on the opposite side of the battle fighting against him, you could actually be his kid. I mean, come on. I mean, come on. To know that God has spared us the wrath that we deserve for being his enemies. And instead of wrath, he's given us love and mercy and grace. And he has actually, get this, the Bible says he has adopted us as his children. You're going to like that someday. Someday you're going to be like, man, that's good news that I used to be at war with God on the losing side, mind you. But instead of pouring out his wrath on us, he forgave us through his son and made us his friends. See, worldly wisdom does not lead to some type of godly contentment. Worldly wisdom results in opposition to God, fights and quarrels, prayerlessness and ineffective prayer 
And finally, what does James teach us? He teaches us that worldliness must be repented of. See, God is gracious to those who humble themselves, right? God will exalt those. So the opposite of worldly wisdom, which says puff yourself up and show your name to be great, godly wisdom says I'm nothing and yet the grace of God is on me. I don't have to fight to make my name great. You know why? Because I've been rescued by God and he values me. So worldly wisdom says make much of yourself. Godly wisdom says make much of God who loves you even though you are little. And so guess what? It's going to have to be one or the other. It's either worship yourself and idolatry or worship God. There are only two sides to be on, and you must take a side. And the beautiful thing is, in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we find that God changes hearts and gives us the power to be able to, get this, what James says, resist the devil and flee from him. And draw near to God. Did y'all catch that? Two opposite ends of the spectrum, right? How do you resist the devil and flee from him? Draw near to God. How do you draw near to God? Resist the devil and flee from him. You see what God's telling us how we resist. We resist by running to God and treasuring him. Drawing near to God is how we resist and flee from the devil But we must do so because there are only two sides and we can't be in both. And notice, James even begins to sound like an Old Testament prophet because he starts using phrasing that we would be familiar with in the Old Testament. Look at places like verse 8, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's Old Testament prophet language. You need to be washed. You need to be forgiven. You need to be cleansed of your sin. What's this talking about? This is talking about repentance. This is talking about new life found in Jesus Christ alone. But in order to do that, verse 9 must be true. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. See, salvation is kind of a a two-sided picture. God must humble us to see how desperately in need we are of his forgiveness. And God must display his greatness. See, what's worldly wisdom tell you? What does worldly wisdom say about your relationship to God? Worldly wisdom says, you're great. And God is little. He's here to meet your needs. He really needs you to accept him. That's what worldly wisdom says. Man is great. And God is at our beck and call. What does the gospel tell us? What does God start the Bible off talking about? Oh, you're not great. You are small. You are a sinner. You are broken. You are in need of rescue. But who's God? He is the king of all creation. The one who serves and shepherds and loves and fights for his people. But don't get it twisted. He is great, and we are in desperate need of him. You understand? 
This is why God must humble us. And that's why we as a church are going to spend a lot of our time when we study the Bible together talking about how little we are and how sinful we are. You understand? I know it's rough on some of you because you're like, Where do, when do we get to the good stuff, right? Why do we have to spend so much time talking about how sinful and, and rebellious we are against God? You know why? Because God spends that much time talking about it. If you study the Bible, 90% of it is God telling you how much desperately you need him. And he spends 10% of it talking about how great he is and how you can turn to him and what he's done through Christ. You understand what I'm getting at? There's a lot of ugly that must happen before we see the beauty and the glory of God. So what we see is that worldliness must be repented of, and that repentance comes from understanding that we are sinners in desperate need of the rescue of God, and God is a mighty king who has provided everything we need to be forgiven of our sin, to be taken from enemies of his to his children. See, we need a pure heart. We need clean hands. The problem is we can't do that on our own. I can't clean my own hands. I can't purify my own heart. And I know the same is true for you. Only God can give you a new heart. Only God can purify. Only he can cleanse. And so this morning, please don't walk away from here thinking, oh, well, I just need to clean up my life, right? If I clean up my life, then everything will be fine and God will love me. You can clean up your life as much as you want. It won't make you right with God because cleaning up your life does not pay for your sin. But guess what? God's not asking you to. What he's calling you to do is not clean up. What he's calling you to do is trust in him that he can clean you from the inside out. And that is only possible by trusting and believing in Jesus Christ who died in our place. See, worldliness must be repented of because it is contrary to God. And just so you know, we as Christians, why would we ever live and display worldly wisdom in our lives when we realize what it means? As Christians, we should want to glorify God with every ounce of our being, to operate off wisdom that is from above, which is peaceable and pure. That's what we should operate by. Why? Because Jesus has changed our hearts to allow us to be able to serve him and to love him and to glorify him with everything that we say and do. So this morning, there's only two sides. You're either friends of the world or you're friends with God. And the defining factor in that is whether or not you're trusting and believing in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in your place. That you can be forgiven through the sacrifice of Christ. And so this morning, I'm calling on all of us Christians in the room. If you are a believer in Jesus, then worldly wisdom has no place in your life. You have been rescued, you've been bought with a price, and you have been given wisdom from God that is above any understanding. And this morning, what we need to see is that we as Christians should continually humble ourselves before God seeking to glorify him, knowing that when we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. That we are friends of God, calling out to other people to repent and to trust in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand you are not neutral to God. You're an enemy of God. And what you need more than anything is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And I would urge you this morning, if you don't know which camp you're in, 
come and talk to me. I'll be happy to show you from God's word how we can determine which camp we belong to. But this morning, what I pray comes out of this place is a group of believers who are no longer trusting in worldly wisdom, but instead have hitched themselves to the wisdom that is only from above, that through Christ we might actually live and think and act to the glory of God. Jesus Christ can rescue even the vilest of sinners. He did it for us. He can do it for you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you, and I thank you for your word. God, even in texts like this that are tough, God, it's hard to talk about worldliness and what it looks like. And Father, I pray that this morning what we've seen is a clear distinction between worldly wisdom and your wisdom. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't coddle worldly wisdom, we wouldn't coddle our sin, but instead we would see it as an affront to you. God, that we are not neutral towards you, we stand in opposition apart from Jesus. And so, God, I pray this morning that we as Christians would live lives that display uh, godly wisdom, that we would live lives that display that you are our king and we are operating under the wisdom that you bring to your children. And, God, that we might celebrate this morning as Christians that we're no longer enemies of yours, but instead, God, we have been forgiven and we are now your children. God, there is no greater gift you could give than to bring us into your family. Those, of, those who, like us, are, are sinners and didn't deserve your forgiveness. God, we are grateful this morning, as Christians, that your grace was poured out on us. And Father, we pray that you would rescue others among us. God, who maybe don't realize that, that they're not neutral towards you, God. They're actually enemies of yours. And Father, as past enemies, we cry out to them, God, to repent and to trust in you. Lord, I pray that you will save people this morning, that you will show them their desperate need for you and show them your immense greatness. Oh, God, you alone can do it, and we trust you that you will. I pray this morning you'll find us as Christians responding in trust and obedience to you. And, Father, I pray that we'll find those who don't believe in you repenting and trusting in you this morning. God, work among us for your own glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.